Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. With this episode, Seekers and Scholars is beginning its third year as a podcast located at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. We're finding it to be a very lively space, so we're very much looking forward to our third season. And as we do, it's very important to us to hear from you. I want to thank everyone who's responded already to our short three-question survey about the podcast. It's still up, and we'd love to get more responses. So, after listening to this episode, please consider filling out the questionnaire if you haven't already done so. You'll find a link to it in the episode details. So, with our next season lying ahead of us, I'm so pleased to welcome into studio Dr. Dan Cohen for a conversation about podcasting and what it offers for conveying a more accessible voice and maybe a more honest voice from the world of higher education to the public at large. Welcome, Dan. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for hosting me. It's a real privilege for us. Dan, you are Vice Provost for Information Collaboration, Dean of the Libraries, and Professor of History at Northeastern University. And in addition to that, you host a podcast called What's New. But for us at Seekers and Scholars, you have a particularly special place as the keynote speaker, or one of the keynote speakers, at the Sound Education Conference for Educational Podcasters and Listeners that took place in November 2018 at Harvard Divinity School. And then your talk, which was titled Bridging the Academic Public Divide Through Podcasts, really hit home for us at Seekers and Scholars. It addressed so many of the issues and so many of the aspirations that we have for our podcast. So what we're going to do in our conversation, if it's all right uh, with you, is play clips from your address and then talk about them. But before we get started, I just, you know, I, I read your job titles. Why add hosting a podcast to what already <laughs> seems like a very full professional and academic workload? Right. Well, I have always uh, been interested in finding additional media in which to express what I'm doing, what my colleagues are doing. And when I returned to academia from four years working at a nonprofit, the Digital Public Library of America, which synthesized and brought together the collections of America's collections, libraries, mm. archives, museums, historic sites, I really felt it was important to express anew mm -hmm. what was happening within the academy because I've always been impressed and surprised by the sheer variety of ideas that are explored and communicated to students and ideally also communicated to the public. And I mm -hmm. think it's that last part that has been weaker than it probably should be in the recent years or decades where academia seems to have, I think, drifted apart from the public. And you can see that from a lot of the hand-wringing that goes on in the public about uh, everything from the cost of college to what all of the strange professors are doing uh, in terms of their writing to really complex science and technology that isn't really, uh, again, articulated well to, I think, the general public. And so for me, again, as someone who started blogging 15 years ago when mm -hmm. it was not a very cool thing to do for professors or 
for someone who, in fact, had a podcast very early on, starting in 2007 at George Mason University, my first academic appointment, I really wanted to revisit this idea of using this unique channel of sound Mm -hmm. and articulation uh, through the voice of what I was doing and what was going on at my university. It reminds me of your address, what you're talking about. You spoke about the unique feel of the human voice to kind of cut across boundaries of understanding that the written word might might not. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. The conversation itself is actually really, I think, an interesting property of the podcast. When you're in that more casual mode of conversation, I feel that academics, just like everyone else, really switches into a kind of voice that is actually much more approachable and relatable. And I think you probably heard in my keynote at Harvard Divinity School that that relatability and approachability is, I think, a strength that we should exploit uh, in podcasting. You have a sort of special relationship when you join a conversation, when you pull up a chair at a coffee shop and hear two people talking. It's a different relationship to that knowledge and the way it's being explained than you do to print on a page or bits on a screen. Mm. That human connection. You know, it makes me want to play this clip from your address. You're talking about relatability in terms of the process, the journey of academia. Podcasts can also frame academic expertise in a way that can thrill an audience. I always like quoting um, Teller, who is the shorter, uh, quieter magician in Penn and Teller. And um, he does speak. And when he speaks, when people ask him about magic, he always raises this point, which is that a big part, a central part of what makes magic magic, what makes magic what it is, is that magicians will spend a ridiculous amount of time practicing something. They will practice a specific skill, like bouncing a ball through a hoop, for hundreds and hundreds of hours, more hours than the audience believes is actually possible. They will get so good at something that it seems magical and that actually it just relates to to Teller literally practicing 10 or 12 or 18 hours a day on a new trick. It's more time than seems humanly possible. I think by this definition, there's a lot of magic in academia. You know, our colleagues spent years, they spend years and even decades decoding ancient papyri, trying to solve fantastically complex mathematical theorems, or tracking down the smallest bits of evidence in the archive or assembling the largest data sets known to man. Audio done well can display what is, let's be frank about it, obsession. It's the same, it's a parallel obsession to Teller's obsession. This obsession of academics' audience, this willingness to put in the time. And I think as Teller notes, whenever he talks about this in the end of the story, he notes that revealing how a magic trick is done, actually telling the audience, which they do in their Las Vegas show, this is how this, this trick was done which is by grit and practice and sheer will, actually enhances the experience from the audience. They still find it magical and they're wowed in a kind of bigger way, a more appreciative way. It doesn't dissipate the magic, but it enhances it. 
It makes me want to ask, do you see a correlation between academic discipline and spiritual discipline, that those worlds come together? Right. Well, as, as a Victorianist, <laughs> you know, of course, right. I mean, remember that people used to go to college to— uh, you know, to pick up theology in, in many different traditions, right? That's that's what learning was for, right? It had an emphasis around religious practice and training to be clergy, mm-hmm. right? And so, it's really only relatively recent in our uh, our history, of the last 150 years, where we've had this separation of uh, the spiritual realm and the secular realm within academia, and we still have many of the same. Uh, structures, whether it's, you know, the lecture slash sermon or um, exegesis, right, the close reading of texts that occurs in theological studies, but also occurs in every English department in the United States. Uh, we've, we have learned how to approach texts, to study foreign languages, to do all this work. And, you know, as a historian of science, I'll also say that, remember that the word science is a relatively recent creation of the mm-hmm. early Victorian period. It was called natural philosophy or natural theology before 1840. There are very deep lines of connections between these realms, and I think there's still quite a bit to be learned uh, between those realms. Another uh, important moment I thought in your keynote address was about this concept of getting beyond the mind to the heart. In his recent book, How to Think, about how to talk across our current social and political divide, the literary scholar Alan Jacobs calls on us to foster what he calls like-hearted rather than like-minded audiences. Like-hearted, not like-minded audiences. We shouldn't be asking everyone to always agree with us or set up audio streams that are just convinced, convinced, convinced. That shouldn't be the goal. <laughs> so what are the, the biggest dangers for us if we don't bridge the academic public divide? And what is the, the great potential and promise if, if we do? Being married to a, a psychologist, um, we've had lots of talks about the decreasing ability for us to step into someone else's shoes and see life through their eyes. Um, Mm -hmm. That is a very humanistic sort of principle, actually, that I just worry about in general, but also in academia, that as um, we, say, move more readily into STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, then we may lose some of this ability to actually be empathetic. So this is a, a really problematic area for us. And I think that uh, one of the things that scholars can do quite well is, in fact, to sort of assume the position of someone else. Literary scholars can do this extremely well to go inside a Tolstoy character and sort of try to understand motivation or classically Shakespeare um, is great not because of plot but because of the ability of the characters to uncannily express a perspective that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. Also, I often talk about the archive as someone who did a lot of archival research or working with paper uh, that, you know, the archivists of today can't anticipate what the historians of the future will grasp mm-hmm. and discover in their archive. They simply can't. Right. And so we save things not because we 
have determined what the future will hold for that. But because it provides a platform in which people make utterly unexpected discoveries or use those materials in completely new ways. And that is of tremendous value to society because it is almost like this hidden gem that we just don't discover for, again, decades or maybe even centuries that then will come back and have value. And I think we need a space in our society we need a space in our libraries and cultural heritage institutions to reserve those gems and to make them available in the future. And I think if we let the skepticism and the kind of oppositionality and the lack of empathy triumph, then I think as a society, maybe not now, but soon, we will be impoverished mm-hmm. by this disconnect. So you are a neighbor to us here at the Mary Bickerty Library. But what kind of divide do you think exists between what we're about here and what, uh, what people are thinking about it at Northeastern? And, and what, what could we do um, you know, to, to close that, uh, that separation more so that there's a better understanding? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think actually we have a lot of the same commitments, right? Mm-hmm. We have commitments to knowledge and to society. Um, I think we have a depth of care on mm-hmm. at both of our institutions for the neighborhoods around us and around the world. It sounds trite, but it's worth saying mm-hmm. that actually those are values that we hold in common and we right. pursue them through different means. But Uh, You know, in the period I studied in the 19th century, um, when, look, you know, in 1848, there were multiple revolutions across the continent of Europe. There Mm -hmm. was the horrors of the Industrial Revolution and inequality uh, that rivals or indeed exceeds the inequality we see in today's societies. Um, In those cases, there were always, always ecumenical connections between religious institutions, Mm. between religious institutions and institutions of higher learning, which indeed did get secularized slowly during the 19th century, but maintained a sort of, again, common spirit of pursuit. Mm -hmm. Um, There were academics who went out and uh, taught uh, factory workers about science, Mm -hmm. and there were clergymen who taught about theology in those very same workers' institutions, there are ways that we can make commitments together. I do think through a kind of humanistic spirit, there is still a tight, if latent, connection between our institutions. And indeed, we're lucky to be here in Boston, which I know people from outside of Boston get annoyed when when we (laughs) say that there are 75 institutions of higher learning and Mm. many schools of theology actually scattered across the Boston area. It is um, perhaps annoyingly a center of learning and an important one, but one that probably, again, needs to flip itself outward once again to the Boston area, to our communities, to New England, to the United States, and to the world. And I think there are plenty of things that we can do together to make that kind of outreach. Mm. Well, it's been great talking with you, Dan. Um, We got to know each other initially at the Sound Education Conference for Educational Podcasters and Listeners at 
Harvard Divinity School, and I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't do a little bit of a shout-out to the host of that yes. um, event, uh, which was the Ministry of Ideas podcast that's led and, and hosted by Zachary Davis that made all of that possible. But what it makes me um, wonder about is just your thoughts on how people in the 21st century, in sort of the advanced industrial world, how do they want to talk about spirituality and religion? You know, the United States is an unusual spiritual place. Yeah. Uh, one of my mentors, John Butler, the great historian of American right. religion, yeah. always said, if you want to grasp America, go to New York City, get off the bus or train, go get a Yellow Pages in a phone booth. This was some time ago when we had both Yellow right. Pages <laughs> and, <laughs> and phone booths. And turn to the section on religion. Right, wow. And just thumb through it for New York City. And, of course, John wrote a great book about religion in Gotham mm. and noted that it is of all varieties and it is rich and deep. Um, it includes some, you know, what I guess we would call secular spirituality and New Age mm-hmm. kinds of things as well as the oldest kinds of religion in all their forms. We live in a sort of vibrant country for spirituality that sort of constantly renews itself. Mm. And whether we call it religion or spirituality, there there are very deep currents in the U.S. that are not in some other places on earth. For me, you know, there are great opportunities for ecumenical and cross-religious conversation. Mm. And that interreligious dialogue, I think, is is really quite important, as well as dialogues with those who are spiritual and those who aren't, who often do have many of the same very humanistic principles, but might articulate them and pursue them in different ways. So I think we all could use a little bit more humanity (laughs) in our world. Um, I think emphasizing that in whatever religion or non-religion you choose in your life is important. And to seek out those connections at whatever level and through whichever media are most comfortable to you seems like a good idea. Well, it does to us at Seekers and Scholars. I think that's a little bit of our anthem. For So thank you for expressing it so beautifully. Thanks so much, Dan. It's been great having you. It's been wonderful being here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on podcasts and the human voice of higher education. Our guest was Dr. Dan Cohen of Northeastern University and host of the podcast, What's New? Just a reminder about our short three-question survey about Seekers and Scholars. It's been very helpful to us to get responses to it. If you haven't already filled it out, please consider doing so. You can find the link in the episode details. Please join us for our next episode when we explore the fertile religious landscape of Boston in the late 19th century. Our discussion will look at cultural and spiritual crises and contests in Boston at this time, and what Mary Baker Eddy encountered in shepherding a new religious movement during a period of profound transformation in the city. 
Our guest is Dr. Peggy Bendroff, Executive Director of the Congregational Library and Archives in Boston and author of Fundamentalists in the City, Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885 to 1950. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.